Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Canon with Rob Shoup, VP of Special Projects at Gyro Data. Rob, how are you doing this crisp? What is it today? Thursday? Thursday afternoon. It is Thursday, the first Thursday in December. That's doing it. wonderful. How are you, Justin? I cannot complain. This is probably going to get released after Christmas, but I couldn't tell. I can't tell everyone how excited I am for Christmas. It's been a crazy year, and I think everyone's just looking forward to turning this page over and opening a new chapter and into the next decade. And you know, with a you know quite highly possibly a new administration and just getting this COVID stuff behind us, I think there's lots to look forward to in the next you know in the foreseeable future. Anyway, so. But again, Christmas is upon us. Have you started decorating for Christmas? I've got my Christmas lights up. Oh, right. Do you do it yourself or do you hire people? No, did it myself. What? Yeah, I've got a couple of young boys, so I had a little bit of help. Ah, very good. Yeah, put them to work so that hopefully next year I won't have to do any of it. (laughs) Right? We'll see how that works out. Hey, I'm with you there. I tried getting my kids to help me, but at five and two years old, they weren't quite ready to step on the ladder, although they wanted to. We hung up a few inside the house, but I, you know, growing up in Canada, we always hang our own Christmas lights. Down here, most of the people that I see hire people, which in hindsight, I don't know if I'd want to climb 30 or 40 feet in the air because some of these houses are quite a bit taller than the ones that I grew up around. But I commend you for doing it yourself. I think that's uh, highly commendable because it's it's a lot of work. And mind you, you're not doing it in snow. You're probably doing it in like 65 degree weather. So it's not that bad. Well, that's very true. And on the other side of that, when you go to take them down, down in Texas, as opposed to Canada, you can actually roll the wire right back onto reels. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not frozen stiff and it doesn't want to bend. Oh yeah. No, it's pretty labor intensive doing it back home, but it is fun. And yeah, I just, I love Christmas and I, I bought some candles the other day from Kroger and this good smelling Christmas ones. And so I've lit them up and my daughter's all about it and I'm playing cr- classical Christmas music and Yeah, I don't know. It's just that time of year I get all excited. So again, this will be probably published afterwards. So hopefully everyone had a wonderful Christmas and happy holidays and a happy new year to everyone out there. So Rob, tell us a little bit, you know, first before we get going, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, what it was like growing up there, and then we'll dive into some other good stuff. Well, actually, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Oh, wow. That's rare. Yep. So for this will probably kind of date me, but we had an office off Beltway 8. When we first started, or Gyrodata was first started, I wasn't there at the very beginning. I came a couple of years after. Okay. But it was off a little road called the West Belt. West Belt North, it was just, it ran north of I-10 for about two miles and dead ended. Hmm. Well, that now is Beltway 8. <laughs> I was going to say. So no we were having a conversation one day and it was a, a young software engineer. He was talking, he said, yeah, he goes, man, it seems like a long time ago. Remember 
before they opened the Beltway officially, they had a, a big party. Mm. I can't remember. I think it was Huey Lewis and the News performed. Okay. And you could ride your bicycles and walk up and down it. And I said, yeah, I remember riding my bicycle on Loop 610. <laughs> and, and he goes, man, that really dates you, Rob. No and I said, well, the only reason that happened was it was the very last little section before they opened it. Okay. And I don't remember this, but my dad told me, he said, I took you down and let you ride your bicycle for a couple hundred feet on the freeway so that when you got older, you could tell people you did that. No way. That yeah. is actually really cool. <laughs> Do you remember what year it was when the Beltway actually connected into a full loop? I don't remember, but it's been open now for 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Because when I moved here, it was already open, but now the big one is obviously the Grand Parkway, which it's, I don't think it's fully connects, but it's... I don't know. It's got to be more than halfway, hey? I, think. I think so. And I don't know. I heard that they possibly might not ever totally connect it, but it was supposed to be 158 miles around. Man, that's wild. It's like driving from here to Austin. Yeah. No kidding. I think there's that much road in Canada alone. Like, yeah. <laughs> so just the fact that it circles a city that takes up a good majority of Canadian populations is just, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. And wow. So what part of Houston did you grow up in? So I grew up off of Stella Link in West Belfort, lived there till I was 14, and then we moved over off of Woolcrest oh, yeah. in Westheimer. Mm. That was pretty much way out in the middle of nowhere. I thought, <laughs> my God, we're moving way out in the sticks. Yeah. <laughs> now it's almost the middle of town. Yeah. Dude, that is so funny. Well, it's neat to talk to people that have grown up around here. Actually, my boss was born in in Houston and you know, just talking about the good old days and especially about you know the Astros and the Astrodome and as much as the U.S. isn't quite as old, or Houston is old as maybe New York, and I don't know how the two compare. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a it's a historic place within the U.S., but it does have a lot of history, and there's there's some really neat stories that come along with it. Growing up, what was your favorite memory about Houston or growing up here around Houston? Well, we used to have an amusement park called Astro World. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, and I used to enjoy going to that as a kid, and I kind of miss that. I wish we had something. I bet. Still in town like that. Yeah. They keep talking about it. In fact, I think Disney World was looking at doing something out west of town. Yeah. I heard about that a few years ago, and since then I haven't heard anything. Well, I think what happened was is they were going to take a lot of land on the Katy Prairie. Okay. And there's a lot of bird migration that happens, a lot of wetlands. Oh. So there was a little bit of pushback on that, and they thought, oh, we're not going to get it open that can of worms. Really? Yeah. So they decided not to do that. Interesting. Huh. I guess from an environmental perspective, it makes sense, but selfishly, I wish they would have done it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> I mean, it would have brought a but lot. But now of we have all these flooding issues in Houston, and it's yeah. all, it's primarily growing to the west and to the north. Yeah. Well, I say that. Now, 288, they just opened a new toll road going down south towards Angleton. Right. That's really going like crazy as well. Mm hmm. But I know that being that I live in West Houston and with Harvey and uh, the flooding and the reservoirs, the Corps of Engineers is looking at different alternatives. That's all happening right now. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm like, if you keep building or putting concrete on top of dirt and you can't have nowhere for it to soak into the ground, mm -hmm. plus they're hauling a lot of dirt out there to elevate the home so they don't flood. Yeah. Ultimately, it's going to be an issue down the road. Yeah. There's no telling what's going to happen. I mean, it's, like you said, especially if they keep building and just throwing concrete down, eventually the water's got to go somewhere. And unfortunately, it's not going to recede. And then the ground here too really doesn't absorb water that well. At least from what I experienced compared yeah, to other. Yeah, we've got a lot of, of gumbo. Yeah, yeah, good old gumbo. I've had my fair share of gumbo experiences on a rig, and it's never great to deal with. However, it's just part of it going down, uh, you know, down here around the Gulf Coast. Before we get going, 
I do want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, TechNip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. TechNip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. So, Rob, I can't help but notice, and again, not to speak much about your age and how long you've been around, but according to LinkedIn, you've been with Gyro Data for 39 years. Is so, that true? So, actually, my original hire date's on there, but I was actually laid off from Gyro Data mm. in 1986, and I was gone for 14 months. Wow. So, in reality... Did you go on a vision quest, or what did you do? No, in 1986, oil crashed. Yeah. The city of Houston was extremely interconnected with oil. Mm-hmm. So the whole economy in Houston kind of crashed. Yeah. I was gone for 14 months, and in 14 months, I had five different jobs. <laughs> okay. Two of which I quit. One, I quit to come back to work at Jared, fortunately. Hmm. But it, it was just, overall, the economy was really tough. Yeah. I remember my dad telling me one night, he said, you know, you've had more jobs in the last year than I had in my life. <laughs> and I said, at least I was working, Dad. Yeah. And he goes, well, that's a good point. <laughs> right. Obviously, those jobs that I had outside the oil industry didn't pay near as well. Mm. What did so, you end up doing? Well, my background's electronics. So I worked on dictating equipment, huh. repairing, like I said, dictating equipment, which attorneys use a lot. Doctors would dictate everything in after procedures, operations, and whatnot. Mm. Insurance is very much into it. Okay. Where they would call somebody up and take a statement over the phone. They would record it, and then they would have people replay these tapes Hmm. and put it all in writing. Gotcha. Now, I imagine that's probably all automated now. You can probably convert audio to text. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I did that. I've always had a mechanical aptitude, high mechanical aptitude, and then, like I said, with my electronics background as well. Yeah. It kind of opened the door to do different things. So. Mm -hmm. I did that, and then I would come in every once in a while and run the calibration stands at Gyrodata. Okay. They were, you know, obviously got really slow, and it was it was tough times for the company. Yeah. Fortunately, our Aberdeen, Scotland office was busier at that particular time, because historically in North America, as you probably know, you can turn it off like a light switch. They can stop drilling overnight. Yeah. Overseas, our operations have always been more contractual. Mm-hmm. So when you're on a big project and things kind of go haywire for a period of time, they stay stable unless it goes on long enough like it has. Right. Where things kind of start dropping off. The investment money goes away. So it's going to be interesting times coming ahead. It will. With all this COVID going on and, you know, with the reserves and the planes are starting to fly again. I see the, the 737 MAX just made its first flight. Hey, there you go. So things are getting back on track. Burn, baby, burn. Yes. <laughs> so how did you end up getting in the oil field to begin with? I mean, you, you said you were at Jar Data for a bit, then the 14 months, but what, I mean, how did you get into the oil field? So I got into the oil field and I went to the Institute of Electronic Science at Texas A&M University. Okay. And got recruited by Dresser Atlas right out of school. Cool. Right back in Houston. They used to have a great big facility off the Beltway 8 and Westheimer. Okay. So I started my career there. I worked there for nine months and then I was laid off because that was one of the downturns in the oil industry Hmm. again. Yeah, yeah. And a good friend of mine that I had met there, we got pretty close and 
he found a job at a little company called Gyrodata. And so we kept in touch. And about four months later, he said, hey, you interested in coming over? And I said, sure. And he said, well, my boss wants to meet you. So I went in one afternoon and visited with him. And the next day he made me an offer and the rest is history. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. So aside from the little, you know, 14 month hiatus, I mean, again, you've been around for a long time. I think nowadays that's quite unheard of because most folks, you know, looking at either their resumes or even on LinkedIn, every four to five years, you know, people will, you know, jump ship or, you know, seek better opportunity, maybe better financial situation. But I mean, I think that speaks a lot to gyro data. And I don't remember exactly how long Ezra had been around, but he's been around for a long time too, hadn't he? Yeah, he's been around a long time as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I say that to say this, I mean, what keeps you around? And I mean, granted, with someone like your experience, I'm sure, you know, opportunities have come up and I would imagine you said thanks, but no thanks. But can you speak on, you know, whether it's the leadership, the culture, the mission, the values? I mean, what really keeps you around you know, with gyro data for this long? Because again, it's very unheard of nowadays. It really is. And the reason that I've stayed there, and I believe that all the long-term people is that we started out as a small company. Mm -hmm. I was employee number 11 when I hired on. Oh, wow. So, and we didn't actually, we had gyros, but it was a system that we bought from a company out of California whose primary customer or end user was the government, the aerospace guidance technology. Right. And so the first thing that our engineers wanted to do was change the electronics. Obviously, going down hole, things get very hot. Mm-hmm. These electronics weren't really manufactured for that, and so they were totally redesigned. So it was a couple of years after I started before we actually had a commercial project. And it was kind of unique in the fact that when Gyrodata was starting out, you know, was especially when I heard on, was a lull in, the, in our business, one of the down cycles. Mm-hmm. So there were some outside investors that believed in the technology. Over the years, people have told me, it's like, how come you're so tight with money, right? And I'm like, have you ever come to work when it was payday and there wasn't enough money in the bank to make payroll? <laughs> right. And that happened a couple of times. Wow. And, you know, but we had an individual, Steve Klopp, who was the kind of the money guy behind it, our CEO for years. And he was always able to raise enough money to keep it going. Wow. And it's always been a small family-oriented atmosphere, right? Mm -hmm. It was that, the technology, the camaraderie, the challenges, Mm -hmm. the things that have happened over the years. And people go, hey, can you do this? And it's like, I don't think we can today, but I bet we can tomorrow. Yeah. You know, and and it's we've always had that attitude that no's not in our vocabulary. Yeah. Right? Hmm. We'll try to do whatever we can to try to help the clients out. Yeah. And we've come up through a lot of unique situations, a lot of neat workarounds mm-hmm. and things that we can come up with before with clients. So, yeah. no, that's really interesting. And because you've been there for quite a while, I mean, you've seen the oil field ups, you've seen the downs, you've seen $100 oil, you've seen, like most of us, negative 30 or whatever it was, dollar <laughs> oil. I mean, what has kept you around oil and gas? Well, I've just always really enjoyed the field. Yeah. You know, the technology, and trust me, when I was going to school studying electronics, I had no earthly idea that I would end up in the oil and gas business. Okay. You know, I just never associated it with that. So it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great answer. I mean, you do it because you love it. And sometimes it's just about that. (laughs) No, that's right. Yeah. What's for you in the last, you know, 
39 however plus years that you've been you know in the oil field what's been the biggest change or pivotal moment in our industry would you say you know we're going through it or something that you've maybe experienced but what at what point did the oil field change or is it just something that's constantly changing well i think it's something that's constantly changing there's been a lot of smaller downturns 2009 there's different things associated with all that a lot of it's political. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you've got OPEC and different things that happen. Yep. In the U.S., there's a lot of different variables that are involved in what's happening. But I think the biggest thing that has, has really changed the whole industry is fracking. Yeah. The ability to drill these wells in areas that they couldn't really produce, they weren't financially viable. Now they are. They can go in and they can frack these wells. They can produce a lot of hydrocarbons out of them mm-hmm. that they couldn't before. So I think that was a huge game changer, no doubt. Yeah. The biggest thing aside from that was the the big downturn in 2014. Mm-hmm. We kind of predicted maybe it was going to be a 15, 18-month ordeal. But as you know, ever since the mid-2015 mid into 2015, things have dropped to a certain level and really kind of maintained that mm-hmm. until COVID. Yeah. And now we've dropped way off. Yeah. We're at what, 800 something rigs today? Maybe a little over 900. Globally, you mean? Or, what, or no, I know it's not globally, but North America. North America, I think, isn't it around? Well, I know the US is about three, a little over 300. Or 300, maybe global, I'm thinking, I guess. It could be. Yeah, I don't know what global is. I kind of keep my finger on the pulse of the US and even Canada. But yeah, I mean, the rig count right now is extremely, I mean, it's depressed. But I think there's certainly opportunity coming out of this and that's kind of one of the questions i had for you is is obviously the landscape within energy as a whole is changing you know we've got a new administration who who is very pro climate change and and very pro renewables and and you know arguably for the right reasons but uh, we don't need to get into the the nuances of (laughs) you know from an economic standpoint if it makes sense or even if it's realistic but i think the intent is is good and and so i'm curious i mean in the years that you've been, you know, in oil and gas, I'm sure you've heard the term peak oil several times. And it seems like anytime peak oil brings fear into our industry, we come back with a vengeance. Do you think that's going to happen again? Or do you think peak oil demand is near or has passed? What are your kind of thoughts on that? Well, and of course, you read all these articles, you hear all these different scenarios, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that this COVID, if you look at it, I think it's it's totally changed the way the world is doing business. Mm-hmm. For instance, I've got a friend that has a couple of partners and owns several restaurants, of which they've closed a few. Yeah, but they had a corporate headquarter, and he said, you know, we were spending several hundred thousand dollars a year on a corporate headquarter where you know the accounting the accountants worked, and he said we've closed it down. Right. When COVID started and everybody started working remotely, we found that it was just as efficient, if not as efficient or more efficient, I should say, mm. than it was when everybody met in the same room or building. And I think that a lot of companies were, I mean, gyrodatas kind of, we're, we're looking into some of that, right? Yeah. It's like, if you don't have to be at the office every day, why go? Right. You know, you can walk from one room to another in your house and start working as opposed to having a 25 or 30 minute commute that takes an hour, an hour and a half out of your day. Mm-hmm. So the quality of life actually goes up some. Yeah. If you can just go in the office and a few days a week or whatever is necessary, then I think that's going to be the accepted norm in the future. Yeah. And I think like most people would agree is that that was inevitable. I think that was going to happen. I think there was a lot of push towards, you know, really understanding that some people perform better at 
11 at night versus nine in the morning and, and then allowing people to really, you know, as long as they're adding value and in, in completing, you know, tasks that are required to generate business, it really shouldn't matter when you work. And so I think that was inevitable. And now this has just been, a, you know, accelerated that rate of, of which we're adapting that sort of culture. And I think especially in oil and gas, because we're such a conservative culture, relatively speaking, it, I think it's good. And I think it's important for us to be able to adopt that and really accept it and encourage it. Because if you look at nowadays, the people that are going to school, graduating, I don't know too many young people, including my brother-in-law, who's in his 20s and all his buddies that want to get into oil and gas. I mean, so we better, you know, really accept the change and, and the new way of doing things. If we want to continue to retain talent and bring in new talent into our industry, And I think that's one of the big changes now is just, you know, where are we going to find these young, eager folks that don't want to work at Google, that don't want to work at Apple and who don't want to work at Amazon? Who want to come work for folks like Gyrodata? I mean, for a long time, there was a lot of people that wanted to get in oil and gas because all, you know, the big money. Well, now they read headlines and all the money is, you know, poof, gone. (laughs) And the investment community has no faith in us. Well, that's right. So, you know, it's again, it's it's changing. And I've been in the industry since 2004. And th- this is for me has been a huge pivotal moment. And but through all, all that and saying that, I think it does present opportunity for companies, especially, you know, you look at the BPs and the shells and they're, you know, divesting, investing in wind and, you know, you know, investing in, in renewables and and then, you know, stuff that even complements us is, you know, the green hydrogen type stuff. And carbon sequestration is big. And so again, I I think there's certainly there's a big shift, but it's exciting. And at the end of the day, I mean, we can't disregard the fact that, you know, if you look at it, 2019, we were consuming 100 million a day, you know, oil globally. 2020, we're going to drop probably to around 90, 91 million, and then projected next year's back up to 97 million. I don't see the demand for oil going anywhere. And you can only get it by drilling. <laughs> well, so that's very true. We, we really have to look at the data and realize that unless we stop using oil for multiple of reasons, and we're not even talking power generation like electricity, which natural gas is, is starting to become you know quite attractive on that front versus coal. For all the listeners out there, the next four years is not going to change much. The demand for oil is going to be there. So let's not freak out and start drawing super conclusions off of you know, off of this, although things are changing. But talking about drilling, again, I think there's going to be a lot of drilling to be had. I think a lot of unique technology is going to be brought to the table. Companies like Gyro Data are continuing to adapt and evolve, which brings me to my next point. You guys are actually actively working towards the continued success of what you guys had mentioned as solid state gyro. I'm not a gyro data guy. I don't know much about it, but I would love for you to educate the audience as to what it is and sort of what the next, you know, sort of the next chapter is with regards to that type of technology. Sure. So historically, when people think of gyros, they think of a spinning mass, mm-hmm. right? The little toy that you hold and you put this, wind it up with a string and you pull it and it'll stand on a table or balance on a string. And it's got a lot of unique principles that we've utilized over the years. But for us, being a gyro company and using spinning mass with the advent of GPS, Nobody in the industry that was manufacturing gyros really had any incentive to make anything smaller that was more accurate, Hmm. right? I mean, airplanes all have gyros in them. Even with with GPS, they have stability systems. Ships still use great big gyros. Mainly they're to control the stabilizer fins on the outside of the ship to try to 
lessen the motion and make the ride more comfortable for the for the passengers. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of this going on, and we've been fighting that for a long time to the point where we couldn't get a gyro small enough and accurate enough for our GWD-90, which was a, a gyro while drilling tool that would actually measure earth rate in a horizontal mode. Hmm. So we had to actually start our own gyro company, which was, I'm not sure exactly how many years ago, 15, 18 years ago. And we were manufacturing these gyros out in California. Hmm. And they're spinning mass gyros, but they're still a spinning mass. Anytime you've got something that's hinged on a hooks joint or a flexor, basically a universal joint that the mass is hanging off of, shock and vibration can, can really play heck with it, right? So we've been working on this new solid state technology jointly with another company for probably 13 years now. Oh. Trying to get the technology to where you could actually measure the Earth's rotational velocity, which is 15.041 degrees per hour. These chips work really good if you mount them in your car and you don't stop fast enough and you hit the car in front of you. That sudden deceleration, it'll pick that up in a heartbeat. Really? But if you're trying to measure the Earth's rotational velocity with it that we can't feel sitting here today talking, yeah, that's a different story. So it was a long time to actually develop this technology. There's a lot of companies out there that sell it. I can remember somebody at Schlumberger years ago telling me, he was a little bit of a model enthusiast, and he said, he said, Rob, he goes, I'm going to buy this new little gyro. It's on this little bitty board. <laughs> and he goes, they put them in helicopters. And I said, oh, yeah, the ones you put in a remote-controlled helicopter, right? That'll help control the stability of it because back then the, the models were fairly large and they were really hard to fly. So this would kind of compensate for you not knowing what you're doing when you're flying this helicopter to keep it from flipping over too quick. Yeah. Right? It would decrease the gain of the servos. So as it start to rotate real fast, it'd go, uh-uh, don't do that. Yeah. Right? And that technology has been around for several years. Huh. And so they use this technology in a lot of different ways. But Do they use it in drones and stuff? They use it in drones, yeah, because of the fact that drones, again, you know, if they make a real sudden rapid movement, you don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And if you're a good enough pilot with these things, you can disable it so that it doesn't negate what you're doing. Oh, wow. Right. So the technology has been around for a long time. It's just that they've been used more so for in an accelerometer situation, measuring rapid movement right, as opposed to actually measuring rate, especially low rate, which, like I said, is earth rate. Hmm. So it's been about, I guess, about three years ago now hmm. is when we started putting these sensors actually in tools in the development stage. Hmm. And now we actually have full-blown systems that we call our SPEAR technology. Okay. So we have a Quest GWD, gyro while drilling with these chips in it. Mm-hmm. They're Coriolis effect gyros is what they are. You excite them at a certain frequency, and then when there's a force applied to it, it reacts in a certain way, and we can actually measure that, right? Hmm. We get an X, Y, and Z vectors, right, which means they have magnitude and direction, and we're able to find north, where true north is. That's important. It's important. So with our old spinning mass technology, there were certain areas we couldn't drill in. The drilling was just too rough. Right. The operator's main objective is to go from point A to point B as fast as they can, and they don't care what it tears up getting there. Right. So obviously these are expensive instruments, so we didn't want them to destroy them. So there was areas in the world we wouldn't even go attempt to run these tools. 
Oh, wow. But with this new technology now, we've got it to the point where they're rated with the same shock and vibe as a standard MWD or magnetic drilling tool, hmm. which is pretty cool. So that allows us to go in. We don't have an east-west anomaly with these tools, right? Because we're using orthogonal measurements with the three different axes. Before, if you only had two axes, when you were going east-west, even with a spinning mass gyro, you were to align yourself with the spin axis. So you're measuring your smallest signal and your accuracy would decrease. But we don't have that problem with these instruments. Interesting. So that's something that's really cool. Wow. Huh. So that's the wave of the future. No kidding. And so what is that? Now, for people who aren't really technical and, and who are understanding the, the jargon behind of a lot of what you're saying, you know, where does the rubber meet the road? Like, what does this then allow for, you know, drillers to do? I mean, can you kind of speak on like where the sort of the macro level value is in that? Yeah, so basically the goal has always been to get to point B, your target point, Mm -hmm. with the highest degree of accuracy possible. Okay. Right? And also there's always the cost that's involved with it, right? Right. So for us to manufacture this technology is a little bit cheaper than it was with the spinning mass gyros. They had a, a certain shelf life on them depending on external environments, shock and vibration and stuff of this nature, right? So you couldn't just say, well, we just manufactured this gyro system and we can run it for a, a thousand hours and then we're going to have to replace it. It might run for 2000 hours, but it could take a hit in a hole or something happened to it. It could leak the atmosphere or half atmosphere of nitrogen that's put in it or right. helium and inert gas. Right. Once that happens, it starts getting real noisy and it's useless. So you can't really quantify. You could kind of average it and say, we're going to get this much life out of it. But with these new sensors and we don't know, but we know... We do know that we don't have to calibrate them as frequently. Okay. They're extremely stable. They can take a lot of shock and vibe. And temperature's always been an issue with these chip gyros or right. Coriolis, what, what's referred to as a MEMS gyro, which is a microelectromechanical device. They don't like changes in temperatures. So that's very tough. And that's something that gives us an edge in the market is because any kind of electronic device or electromechanical, like a spinning mass gyro, You heat it up, you cool it down. You heat it up, you cool it down. There's metal hysteresis behind it. Mm. The bias can change just by cycling at one time. So we would temperature cycle the mechanical gyros up and down, up and down, hot, cold, hot, and cold to de-stress that metal, which is something that we did. And also we needed them to run 300 degrees Fahrenheit or 150 degrees C static without shielding them from outside temperature. Right. So there's a culmination of all this that we've got some really smart guys that have been working with this for years. So changing over to this new solid stake technology, there's been some hurdles that were kind of unseen over the years. And the background with the spinning masses has given us the edge over a lot of other people that have been out there trying to look at this technology. Interesting. I mean, I know that historically you guys have been on the front line of this kind of stuff. And I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to you know drilling a better well, more efficient, which a better well equals better production and more revenue for the operator. And so another advantage, Justin, to the actual solid state over the spin and mass is that, and obviously the operator wants to have the most accurate survey for wellbore placement for a number of reasons, especially now with all the horizontal legs, they're kind of the pitchfork, if you will, where they run, they, they separate them out, but they run parallel with each other. Mm-hmm. If you don't put them in the proper spot, you can leave a lot of oil in the ground Mm. or you could be sucking from the same area in the reservoir from two different wells. So your production is lower in both of those than they should be. Yes. 
So the benefit of the solid state technology in regard to that is that with the old spinning mass, they were subject to shock and vibe. So when we were actually drilling with one of these tools, even though we had some QC measurements that we could look at, Mm -hmm. it could actually, our calibration could have shifted slightly, which would affect the azimuthal readings of the tool, which we wouldn't be able to quantify until after we were out of the hole. Ah, So even though you could drill your well with it, it might change bottom hole location slightly once we post-process all this information. Right. With the new Quest technology, the solid state, the calibrations have been so stable that the only thing we do when we get out of the hole is we do a check to make sure there's there's nothing grossly wrong with the tool. And so far we found that we haven't had to go back and adjust anything. So where the well ended up is where it is. Yeah. So from, from the operator standpoint, a lot of times what they do is they'd say, okay, well, we're going to drill the first well, and then we'll have you survey it, and you tell us where it is, and then we'll try to adjust the other ones accordingly. This way, if you use this technology, you put the first one where you want it, and every subsequent one after that falls right in place. Yeah. No, and, and I think if you extrapolate that, and I'm really actually glad that you brought that up to, to kind of help bring it all together, is is at the end of the day right now, we're, we are so strapped for cash operators are wanting to drill the least amount of wells possible with the maximum amount of production and so you know it may not make a difference on one well maybe two but if you extrapolate you know the entirety of the project you may get more production for a significant amount of wells drilled therefore you know having a better balance sheet at the end of the day. And so all these little things that companies like yourself are doing to help the productivity of of operators and drilling it's things like that that are going to help push our industry through downturns. And so I applaud you guys for that. Thank what, you. what would you say, and you've kind of touched on it, but is there anything else from your perspective, what gyro data looks to do in the future? Obviously it's better well placement, you know, accuracy in technology advancements. But I mean, is there anything else that, that really is sort of the end goal for, for a company like gyro data, or is it just kind of sharpen the ax if you will? No, I think it's just sharpening the axe. Interestingly enough, we get inquiries from people outside of the oil and gas energy. Okay. Right? Like what? Well, for instance, we're just talking to a group of people about a grant they actually got from the United States government for defense. We've oh, been cool. asked to develop a system with this new technology, or if we could, to put in a backpack. So wow. if a soldier was to go inside of a cave system and run around... Could he use this technology to get himself back out of it? What? Or to do mapping technology. Yeah. Right? So. Very uh, cool, man. There's, it's not something we've developed, but it's certainly something that we've been approached yeah. to get involved with. Is that a feasible is, outcome, though? I mean, like in years to come, is that something that you guys think you could take on? Well, I think it's totally possible. Yeah. Wow. You know, it'd take a lot of work, but. If you allocate enough resource and time and money, I'm sure anything's possible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you have to think about the fact if a guy's in a cave and he's running through there, he's bouncing up and down, he might be <laughs> dropping on the ground. So talk about maybe some different type of shock and vibe. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the hell orientation I'm- of the sensor packages, it all gets a little bit complicated there. Yeah. No, it does. Well, I think but- if anything can survive downhole drilling, then it can certainly survive something jumping around on on surface with a backpack. But again, I again totally out of my scope of work, so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it's easy because obviously, if it was, then everyone might be doing it. But yeah. that's neat, and and that's something I do want to touch on is 
you know, nowadays, if companies do get approached out, you know, say, you know, traditional oil field service company gets approached by, you know, other industries, embrace that. I think now if the more you can diversify, assuming it makes business sense and, and the returns are there, entertain the ideas. You know, I talked to, I forget who it was. I think it was a chemical company that, you know, traditionally been involved with, you know, frack chemicals. And now they're talking to the auto industry. You know what I mean? And it's just like, you just never know. I mean, we're, we're great at what we do and we have a lot of experience. The, the ingenuity within oil and gas is, is, I mean, competes with any other industry out there. And so, you know, I think we add value in, in not only just drilling and producing hydrocarbons. I think there's other areas that we can get into that, you know, help might help propel the business. So uh, that's cool. I applaud you guys for doing that as well. One last thing I, I wanted to ask with regards to gyro data is what do you like most about your job? I mean, when you wake up every day, what is it that you look forward to the most when you step, well, step into your home office, I guess, nowadays? Well, I think something that's always kept me going is I've always been really well connected with the guys in the field. Cool. I worked in the field for, I believe it was about nine years running our instruments, which I really enjoyed that. Got a lot of travel, got to see a lot of the world, met a lot of really, really nice people. Yeah. But I think what really, what I thrive on is when I get a call from a guy in the field and he's, he's having issues, being able to help him. Cool. Right? You get yeah. that level of satisfaction that you're helping out. That and, and, and over the years, I might be on vacation or something with a group of other people and I'm working on my computer and they're like, what are you doing? And I said, well, you got to understand that our industry never sleeps. Right. It's a 24-7 deal. Yeah. And at the end of the day... Your client knows if you send them an email at three o'clock in the morning that you went above and beyond what you needed to do. Yeah. Right. And we've always been about customer service. Right. At Gyrodata. Right. It's like, hey, if you guys need the information right now, we're going to help you get it. Yeah. We're not going to hold you up. We'll do the best we can. Mm. So for me, that's always given me a great satisfaction. Yeah. No, I think serving others is life's greatest joy and it's extremely gratifying. And, you know, sounds like not only yourself, but the rest of the Gyro Data family is really values, you know, serving their clients and, and just doing whatever it takes to go the extra mile to succeed. And so again, companies like you guys are going to be the ones that'll be stick around and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to ride the wave when this thing turns around, which I'm quite confident you will. Before we close out a couple of personal questions I'd like to ask, and don't worry, they're not too invasive. But, you know, I, I'm always curious, would you consider someone like yourself to be adventurous there, Rob? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. When's the last time you tried something for the very first time? Something for the very first time? You know, that's a really tough question. <laughs> Trying to think about that. If nothing comes to mind, I encourage you to relive your youth and think of something that you haven't done that you want to try for the very first time. You know, I feel like a lot of people that I ask, it's, you know, back in high school or back in this time, but you know, we were never too late to try something for the very first time. So be adventurous. We got a new year ahead of us. You never know. Maybe you'll go skydiving or something. Well, that's something I considered. Speaking of that, I was kind of tasked with doing a T-building exercise here. Okay. Not, not too past. Yeah. You need to strap a parachute past. onto and Steven so here and let I'm her I'm looking rip. around. It's like, okay, I've taken guys sailing before. We've done that. Just the, the typical normal things, fishing. Yeah. So anyway, I thought, how about zip lining? There we'll you go. Zip lining. Yeah. So a bunch of us headed over to Lake Travis. Cool. And we went zip lining. And a couple of guys were like, you know, that's the most fun I've ever had team building. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's was, a great was, idea. Yeah. It was, it was really awesome. When it's, was that? 
It was maybe a year and a half ago. Okay. There you go. You know, not too long before COVID. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, so that was a su- success. And it was like, okay. There you go. Zip lining. You've heard it there. Everyone out there, you're looking for a team building exercise, go zip lining. Rob says it's a blast and so did everyone else. What's something about you that not many people know about? You got any good hidden secrets to unleash to the podcast world? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I went to Catholic school. Okay. For the first nine years of my schooling. Amen. That probably a lot of people don't know that. And I was an altar boy and probably a lot of people out there in the world <laughs> go, you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider yourself pretty religious or was that just a good portion of your life? Well, it was definitely good education. Cool. I would imagine. I'm sure it, it helped build some great fundamentals. Yeah. So eighth grade was my last year there. And when I went into ninth grade into the public school system, I was about a year ahead. Ah, okay. So that didn't necessarily help me much because I didn't have to study and I, my study habits kind of dropped behind. So then yeah. I had to play catch up. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I guess a piece of advice I would give people, it's like if you're in private school, don't change. Yeah. Just stay there <laughs> Just until you graduate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If that's your parents can afford it. Yeah, I know. That's exactly right, man. Well, one last question. Is there a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in energy is listening to right now? Any good positive messages for the folks who are down and out and who think this thing is never going to turn around? Well, like I said, I've lived through a lot of downturns. I haven't been a casualty myself mm-hmm. in 86, being gone for 14 months from Jaredata. Mm-hmm. Don't give up. It's a cycle. This has been a really long cycle. And of course, with COVID, that's something that was not foreseen that was thrown into the mix. Yeah. Hopefully this will be gone. It'll be behind us a year from now when we're looking forward to Christmas again after Thanksgiving. Right. Hopefully it'll be a handle on it. Things will have come back. The airplanes are flying. Mm-hmm. So I'll just hang in there and be positive. That's it. I like it. Well, with that said, I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for February 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events. The TAMU SBE Sporting Clays Tournament at Tonkaway Ranch in College Station on the 19th, and the Thrive Energy Conference at Minute Maid Park from the 24th to the 26th. The only online event we have this month is the TAMU SPE Executive Series with our very own Mark LaCour of Oil & Gas This Week on the 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for February. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Rob, thanks again for joining me today. What's the best way for people to reach out to you or to just simply get to know more about Gyrodata and some of the unique offerings you guys have? Well, you can always go to our website, gyrodata.com. Okay. Or if you want to personally reach out to me, my email address is rob or rob at gyrodata.com. Excellent. Well, we'll put all the links in the show notes. That way it's easy for everyone to access. 